I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. We have two fantastic interviews for you this week. We're speaking to Sophia Ignatidou about political advertising and personalization through artificial intelligence. And we're also talking to Patrick Schroeder about a just transition to a sustainable future and how to ensure that climate change is mitigated in a way that is fair to the poorest in society. Hope you enjoy listening. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody. Here we are at another episode of Undercurrents. And today uh, we've convened in the media studio on a really cold, frosty London morning, um, well equipped with a lot of hot coffee to talk about a truly terrifying subject, I'm led to believe. So we're joined today by um, Sophia Ignatidou, who is a freelance journalist and who until very recently was an academy fellow at Chatham House working on disinformation and the media. Sophia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we're here to discuss AI-driven personalisation, which sounds like the most techie terminology that you could possibly do, but actually it's truly important, truly terrifying and affects everyone in our day-to-day lives. (laughs) So before we get into why we should all be scared of this, Sophia, could you just explain the background what the term means and um, how it applies to like online advertising what essentially ai driven personalization means is the gradual uh, transition from mass media to personalized media and we have seen it being employed by social media and gradually legacy media what you would call the bbc the new york times yeah. uh, the guardian and what that means basically is that uh, media outlets are, are serving personalized content to individual users. A clear example of that is, for example, targeted advertising uh, that we have seen has gathered, has gathered a lot of attention recently uh, because of the upcoming elections. Mm. So we've seen essentially a trend that was um, developed in social media being uh, adopted by legacy media as well gradually. And there, for the time being, there are two prevalent forms of personalization in the media space. Uh, So you do have personalized ads, but you also have recommender systems. So media outlets like the New York Times uh, is employing uh, machine learning to to recommend stories to uh, its audience. There, of course, there are other ways of personalizing content. So media outlets like the uh, Times in London, they have started using machine learning to personalize uh, newsletters. That's a strategy that also the Washington Post is taking. Uh, to, so they have been employing machine learning to personalize newsletters. Another troubling part of the uh, of this uh, broad tr- trend is that the profiling habits that social media have been employing for the past couple of years are gradually being adopted by legacy media as well, or certain legacy media, I would say. Uh, for example, the Washington Post is also segmenting its audience. So you, have, you are seeing them profiling uh, users as based on their political affiliation, based on how uh, of their online following. So they do have like a segment called influencers, for example. Mm-hmm. 
So obviously that will have broader implications uh, for, for society. And I do believe that a trend that we have seen in, in social media is expanding to legacy is, is a bit problematic and we have to be really careful about it. Okay, so just to be clear, so in, in social media, increasingly the system works based on algorithms that allow um, content to be filtered based on what an individual likes um, and the relationships that they have and where they're based and their kind of demographic information. And it's all calculated through data, which individuals increasingly just provide to these platforms <laughs> as yeah. has been well documented without thinking about the kind of privacy implications or what the platforms are necessarily yeah. going to do with that information and now we have um, legacy media but also increasingly political parties using that mm -hmm. using those methods to do the same thing for their own ends that's right yeah. yes yes that, that, that's exactly right and i mean the initial justification for collecting all this data and basically employing uh, algorithmic systems to rank uh, content mm. was that these platforms were collecting so much content they had to kind of like prioritize certain con content over uh, something else. Uh, so it was kind of like market incentives, business incentives that led to this kind of like strategy uh, using machine learning to filter content. Mm. Uh, but it kind of like led to a, to a space when online users are being constantly profiled um, and has normalized uh, a strategy that uh, is being adopted, yes, by political actors, by legacy media, and that's kind of like in, in a regulatory vacuum somehow. Just with my marketing hat on, could you explain what is scary about trying to provide content that people will find relevant or useful or entertaining rather than just sending them everything that you have? What's yeah. what's the surely there's there's quite a sort of sensible incentive base there to sort of say, OK, well, I have no interest in horses, so I don't want to see the horse racing pages of this newspaper. Like, I just want to read the political op-eds or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had uh, like a discussion with uh, people from the BBC, for example, and they were saying that there is a debate on whether or not uh, personalizing entertainment content makes sense, but maybe personalizing uh, current affairs content it doesn't make sense. So I think there is a, we need to have a broader debate about uh, where personalization is actually useful and uh, where it is not. I mean, I think like uh, providing personalized content in terms of someone's, uh, you know, cultural kind of like preferences maybe does make sense, but maybe doesn't make sense when it you have to deliver current affairs content. I do not believe personalization is is negative like across all industries, even though now yeah. you see like different kind of like domains adopting it, like health services, education, etc. But in terms of journalism, I do think there has to be extra attention paid to its adoption. Uh, because uh, if you are to believe that there is such a thing as a fourth estate still that's supposed to be holding those empowerments accountable that's supposed to inform the citizens now i do think it's really difficult to uh, make sure you, inf you inform your citizenry if you you are providing personalized content without appropriately scrutinizing how you personalize it and Plus, there has been like that's kind of like a discussion that's happening across this space right now that we need this thing called the public sphere. And what personalization does uh, is fragmenting this public sphere, 
we do have to have some kind of like common sense of reality in order to debate the issues we're mm. facing. Yeah. And it's going to be more difficult if we employ this kind of like strategy across the board, basically. And also there is the factor of uh, bias. Obviously, we have to be realistic. There is, many media outlets have their own bias, but at least it's more transparent. It's out for everybody to see. Mm. Now, to what extent will the bias that those algorithmic systems will uh, adopt uh, and the bias that the, the content will have be uh, visible to everybody? I mean, that is a question because, and I think one of the uh, most obvious examples of what can go wrong with personalization is uh, how we have seen actors using political targeted political advertising. You know, I'm not aware of what kind of like ads people are seeing uh, like in the name the same neighborhood as I do. I live, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for people who maybe haven't been following the story so closely, let's move on to the political sphere. Mm -hmm. Just could you give us a sense of how political parties are beginning to use this personalization stuff? It's not a it's not a brand new trend, is it? It's something it's something that actually that has been going on for the last couple of years, right? So yeah, in the past couple of years, lots of political parties have been using personalized ads, uh, adopting uh, Facebook's uh, A-B testing, for example, the strategy where they're testing, A-B testing essentially means you're testing two different ads to see which one is more uh, successful with your uh, target audience. Mm -hmm. And what's problematic about that is, again, the lack of transparency because, I don't know, a political party may promise a certain, like, may, may pledge something specific to uh, an individual based on its own vulnerabilities and its own kind of like online history of what issues interest him. Mm -hmm. And they might pledge something completely, the completely opposite to another user that has a completely different profile. Uh, and I think that's that creates a huge problem for our political uh, life because you 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 see parties entering this space when they where they think they can maybe manipulate their citizens and not be transparent uh, and consistent about what they're pledging to different uh, citizens. Mm. Yeah, not wanting to to play devil's advocate again, which is uh, not a role I'm particularly comfortable with in this conversation. But hasn't it always been the case that political parties will make promises to certain parts of the electorate in order to sort of curry enough support to get a kind of broad coalition behind them? And then ultimately, when they actually get into power, some of those things they can deliver and some of those things they can't. Isn't that just the natural process of democracy? Isn't this just a way of digitising democracy in that sense uh, that is true to a certain extent but up until now we were, we were more capable of holding them to account because their actions uh and what they were promising was uh common knowledge basically yeah. when uh, their pledges are really fragmented and they have like an audience of one mm. it would be really difficult to actually hold them to account Plus, it's going to be really difficult for our, us as citizens to actually reach a consensus in terms of what kind of policies we agree on and what we disagree on. Uh, and I think this kind of like constant drive towards uh, targeting and personalization is a, a focus on single issues as well. So it's easier to 
to define what issue you're more concerned about, target you with a message that will appeal to that specific need you have, and then target someone else with uh, another issue that they are more uh, passionate about. So it all becomes about single issues rather than like a dialogue that will eventually lead to a consensus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's super interesting. I mean, just in the uh, context of the ongoing election campaign in the UK, which obviously we have to be a bit careful about talking about, something that struck me about that was that they haven't, neither of the major parties have actually released their manifesto yet. And, and we're still, I mean, we're still at the time of recording, like only sort of three weeks away from election day (laughs) and yet we still don't have a document that says the conservative party will do this 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 and this but presumably online they've been making all sorts of promises to different segments of the electorate for weeks already but at no point has it been codified into this one thing where you can see all of the promises and work out which ones might conflict with the other it's really fascinating how that might be some some way that politics is changing yeah, plus uh, my guess would be that maybe what they have been seeing in uh, in terms of the digital advertising, it might be feeding into the manifestos as well. Mm. Maybe they're trying to figure out what kind of like messages uh, citizens are, are responding to, to try to figure out how to kind of like frame uh, their policies as well. But maybe that's just a cynic in, in me, I'm not sure. But it sounds like quite sensible market research in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would say so, maybe. Yeah. We've kind of established how these tools are being used, but what changes would you like to see made to this kind of landscape which could kind of mitigate some of the bad effects that we've been describing? So what I would like to see is uh, uh, policymakers becoming more of aware of the technical aspects of the issues that we're discussing because yeah. it's really difficult to appreciate the risks if you are not aware of uh, the technical aspects. Yeah. I would like to see a more widespread debate and actual action in terms of uh, data, uh, how citizens' data is uh, stored, processed, exchanged, mm. I would also like media regulators uh, across the board to get involved uh, because, I mean, this is an ecosystem. I think you have to be aware of what's happening in the relationship between uh, what we call like legacy media and social media as well, because I think there is this uh, danger of these kind of strategies actually consolidated, consolidating already dominant actors, both in the legacy media space. So media regulators have to be uh, cognizant of how personalization and and all these kind of new technologies might actually uh, work against media diversity and pluralism. And what about just, you know, ordinary people, people listening to this podcast? Like, this is quite, this is such (laughs) a huge topic and yet it has such a clear implication for just sort of our everyday lives, like the privacy of our own sort of identities and the data that we share online. And it's sometimes, I think, in this debate, listening to other things and events and and watching scary documentaries about these issues, it feels really disempowering. So are there any actions that sort of everyday people could take to mitigate these things? Or do we just have to wait for the regulators to catch up? 
I think there are things that citizens can start doing. Uh, for example, going back to the upcoming elections and political advertising, you have seen uh, citizens reporting to media outlets like the BBC or The Guardian political ads that they think are inappropriate or they don't have they don't have any kind of like sign indicating that a political ad. So citizens um, have to be more uh, uh, to feel more engaged and yeah. they, because they do have agency. We all have agency. We have to remember that, I think. Uh, in general, I think they have to be more, uh, to become more aware of how they use their data, to who they, they provide their data. Uh, another thing is, you know, when it comes to profiling uh, users, uh, I mean, we do have GDPR in this country. But one thing that I keep on seeing online is uh, what we, you call tracking walls, which is basically like websites uh, basically forcing you to consent to your data being tracked and yeah. being delivered personalized content, or they don't provide their service. It's not all like all websites, but quite a few of them kind of like this have like a lot in, of US websites, right? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. All, in, all in or out basically mm-hmm. um, option. So I, my suggestion would be if you come across this kind of like walls, basically mm-hmm. just decide not to go into that website. I mean, because that's not, uh, co- you know, consent. That's not, that's not. And uh, I think, yeah, I mean, citizens should be more, uh, get more informed and get more involved with different kind of uh, NGOs that are really active in the space of digital rights at the moment, uh, because yeah, we have we are moving into the space when our digital lives are basically inter- interlinked with our actually real lives. So we have to learn how to operate in the online space. Yeah, well, I hope that uh, you can come back in a few months and tell us uh, if any of these things have actually started to happen. <laughs> yeah, Sophia, hopefully. thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so now I'm joined by Patrick Schroeder, who is a Senior Research Fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Department here at Chatham House. This is the second episode in a row that we've got EER represented, so this is this is good news. Thanks so much for joining us, Patrick. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. So we're here today to talk a bit about uh, climate change and specifically this idea of a just transition to a sustainable world. Now, this has been kind of sparked by an article that you wrote recently for the Chatham House website about the protests going on in Chile at the moment, which have led the Chilean government to cancel the COP25 climate negotiations that were supposed to happen in the country, and they've now been moved to Madrid, is that right? So could you maybe just give us an overview of what COP25 was intended to achieve and where are we with kind of climate politics in 2019? Okay, yes. Um, this was a great opportunity for Chile to host the COP, to position itself as a, a climate leader in, in Latin America and to drive the um, climate agenda forward. There were a number of important um, meetings to take place, which are still going to happen, but now in Madrid, which is a, a different context. So, for instance, there will be um, a pre-2020 stock take um, of what has happened since the Paris Agreement in 2015. There's various panels on the national determined contributions, the NDCs, mm. high-level ministerial dialogues on adaptation. So all very important meetings to take place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and what is the status of, of COP at the moment? Because obviously... In, 
a lot of headlines were generated when um, the US pulled out of the Paris Agreement under President Trump. But the COP agenda continues regardless. That's my understanding, at least. Um, so has it been particularly affected by the US withdrawal or is it has it kind of gone from strength to strength? Yes, that's obviously very unfortunate that the US pulled out of uh, Paris Agreement. Um, however, of all the negotiations, they, they continue. And so the world's not waiting for the US, but um, countries becoming ambitious. Um, and there's obviously the expectation that the US will again join the discussions and the process. Obviously, as you said, this was an opportunity for Chile to kind of lead on this on this area, but they've had to move the negotiations. So what events led up to that? So what happened in Chile in mid-October were protests um, that erupted, and, and these were triggered by rises in, in metro fares in Santiago. And this was the trigger for uh, these protests. However, they, they, have, they weren't the real reason. Um, so the underlying causes which cause all this, um, the ongoing conflicts um, are social inequality, dissatisfaction with the political system, rising uh, cost of living, etc., etc., so the reason why I became interested in this because um, Santiago had this or has implemented this from a climate change perspective, very interesting plan to power the metro uh, system with renewable energy, uh, wind and solar power. Obviously, this has then led to higher costs to, to run the system, which probably was one of the uh, reasons for, for the increase in, in the prices. And this shows how these uh, how various social issues and, and climate climate action are, are interlinked. And then the protests obviously also show that inequality on local or national level also has the potential to negatively impact on multilateral cooperation uh, on climate change. So from a local to a uh, global level, all these things um, have potentially cascading impacts, all interconnected. And, and this is the interesting perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And so that kind of brings us to this idea of a just transition. So what does that what does that concept mean and where does it come from? What are its origins? The just transition concept, it's, it's two things that come together. One is the transition. So we are now in the process of transitioning from an energy system or an economy which is uh, high carbon intensive to a system which is low or zero carbon. Um, then the aspect of justice comes in from environmental justice concerns and these have been issues already there for decades. So low income households or poor countries also, they're more heavily impacted by pollution issues. For example, air pollution is one, but also often communities, poor communities are closer located to industrial production, which then often suffer from water pollution, etc. So these justice concerns are now uh, also included in the energy and the energy transition uh, discussions. Some considerations for the for a just uh, transition are obviously issues relating to job losses. And so the industries which eventually would be phased out um, so fossil fuel industries, workers will be affected by this. So there's a concern, obviously, also on this, the social impact of, of these transitions. And the International Labour Organization, um, with their Green Jobs program, is, um, is looking at these issues to provide 
um, ideas or also programs for workers to gain new skills, be reskilled to be able to work in, in, the, in new industries which are also emerging. On that idea of job losses and the effects that that might have on sort of local populations, isn't there an argument then that the climate agenda kind of conflicts with other agendas like reducing inequality, improving the economic state of low-income workers around the world. And as much as the ILO can come up with innovative solutions for this, a lot of it rests on things that individual national governments are going to have to do. So from those national governments' points of view, isn't there an argument that actually they should be focusing on retaining those industries just for the economic good of their citizens? Yeah, um, that's correct. Yeah, ju- uh, governments have a key role to play in, in facilitating a just transition. Mm. And in the Paris Agreement, there actually has also been some wording on, on the just transition. However, in practice, this hasn't been uh, properly implemented. To facilitate these just transitions, there's a couple of justice considerations which need to be included. Um, one of them is uh, concerns distributive justice, so questions about who carries the cost of the transition and who benefits from the transition. And, and these possibly conflicting political struggles need to be moderated by, by governments. Another justice concern is obviously also the issues of participation, um, deliberative processes. So who is involved in decision-making processes? Who sits on the table? Mm. Um, and that's also, again, a role for governments to, to facilitate these. Is this dilemma something that we can observe in Chile? Yes, I think th- that's something that we can uh, see there. Um, so Chile's economy has uh, benefited greatly over the last decades uh, from the extractive sector, especially mining um, for copper, for example, but also recently uh, lithium mining, which is a resource for uh, a lot of renewable energy technologies, including uh, batteries. Um, however, these benefits um, haven't been shared equally. Although poverty overall has has been reduced, the gap uh, between rich and poor has widened. And again, this has now led to um, the dissatisfaction with the um, current political and economic system. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that the EER department at Chatham House work on a lot is this idea of the circular economy. I was just wondering whether you could explain how that interacts with this idea of a just transition to a sustainable world. Is it a solution or does it bring its own problems? Yes, at EER we're working on the circular economy and we're also using this concept of just transitions to... um, to make it applicable to not only energy sector transitions, but also the transition from a linear model where a lot of resources are being wasted to a more circular model where we um, reuse and recycle materials. And so the just transition concept is relevant for the circular economy in in, uh, different ways. For instance, um, a circular economy transition has to be just also in order um, to ensure that countries are not being left behind. So potentially a number of countries which depend heavily on on resource extraction are negatively impacted by, in the long term, by a circular economy transition because there are potentially less demand for primary mined uh, resources. Mm. Which could be the case with Chile. Which could be the case with Chile, yes. And there are predictions by the ILO that over the next 
decades, globally, the mining sector might lose something around 20 million jobs. So for countries which are dependent on on mining sectors, um, it is already now time to think about um, the future, what to do, how to um, reskill your workers, how to uh, position yourself in a future circular economy to to ensure uh, you're not negatively impacted. Um, and addressing issues like social inequality is is part of this. Yeah, 20 million jobs, that is enormous. That is, that is enormous. That's the job loss. One should mention at the same time there will be also gains. For example, oh. there are, uh, the expectation is that there will be about... I don't know, 30, around 30 million jobs gained in sectors like um, material reprocessing, recycling, etc. So overall, the transition to a circular economy will generate net jobs, but they will be in different industries. Yeah, and they might not necessarily be taken by the people who become unemployed due to exactly. the loss of the coal sector, for instance. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yes. Obviously, you mentioned that the kind of just transition discourse is written into the Paris Agreement, but... As you see it, do you think that governments are really engaging with it as a as a kind of tangible concept that they can actually do something about? Uh, so far, most governments have not uh, really um, addressed this, not taking it seriously enough. The the issue to on a on a global level, uh, a just transition requires uh, urgent action. So delaying any transition creates further injustices uh, down the line and. Delaying action will also require more radical solutions later on, which then potentially have also uh, create new injustices. So the just transition concept cannot be used as an excuse to delay action. Mm-hmm. And do you think politicians are sufficiently honest with voters about that? Because in a way, it's it's kind of a difficult message, isn't it, to to say, "I'm sorry, you have to." You have to take something that will feel like a sacrifice now because in theory it could be way worse in the future. That's quite a tough message to take to an electorate. Um, But do you feel like politicians should be doing more in that regard in terms of communicating? Yes, these are ongoing discussions. Um, This also relates to complex questions about intergenerational um, justice and Actually, this is not necessarily something for tomorrow. So as we've seen with um, the climate strikes and Greta Thunberg, Mm. it is already now the younger generation which is realising the injustice that's being created by the current system. And that has already changed the discourse on climate here in the UK. The uh, just transitions issues, they're not just concepts, but they're um, real political struggles which have already emerged. Okay, well, I think we'll leave it there. It'd be great to have you back on after Madrid, COP25, to see whether that's changed the game in any way. Patrick Schroeder, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Patrick's expert comment is available on the Chatham House website now. It's titled Chile's Social Unrest, Why It's Time to Get Serious About a Just Transition.
And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. I hope you enjoyed listening. You can read Patrick's expert comment on the Chatham House website now. And from the 2nd of December, you'll be able to read Sophia Ignatidou's research paper on personalisation and artificial intelligence and all things political advertising and scary internet. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more interviews. And hopefully, as well, you'll be hearing very soon from my erstwhile colleague, Agnes, who... Is currently away, but we'll be back with us shortly. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton, and this has been Undercurrents. Mm-hmm.